Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website and blog. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss. And that came from my 30-year journey with my mother. For those of you who are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction of what Alzheimer's Speaks Radio is about. Basically, our goal here is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's. Rick Phelps, our channel expert who is living with Alzheimer's, will probably pop in a little later in the show, depending on his schedule. As you've noticed on our homepage, if you're on the web, there are links to contact us, so feel free to go ahead and do that at any time. We would love for you to help spread the word by liking or sharing us um, with others out there and hope that you, t- you too decide to become an advocate on steroids for Alzheimer's disease and caregiving. You can also ask questions if you call into the number 714-364-4757 and then just push 1 and that will get you into my queue. Otherwise, if you're on the Internet, you can always use the chat box, too, because I will be monitoring um, both as the show progresses here. We've got two great guests for you today. I'm really excited to have both of them on because it's all about planning for the future. Because with illness or not, we still have a future. And it's important that we maintain control and we have that future looking um, like we want because we have a lot more control than we think. So our guests today are Mary Frances Price and um, Gerald Cummings. I'm sorry, Gerald Cummings, and they are both attorneys. Uh, Mary Frances is from Minnesota, and Jerry is from California. Mary Frances is a shareholder with Major, Amundsen, and Price, and she helps lead the firm's um, elder law department. She helps families make difficult decisions and work through complicated financial, legal, and medical issues that arise when a family member is in a time of transition or when families are just planning for their future. I'm going to let her explain a little bit more about her background to you because I want to also just tell you a little bit about Jerry, and we'll have him do the same. Um, Jerry practices in the area of estate planning, Medi-Cal planning to pay for skilled nursing care, probate, trust administration, conservator, and guardianship. And again, he is out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I want to welcome both of you to the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you. Great. Um, What I'd like to do is kind of start out with um, one question, which is just to see if you've been touched by Alzheimer's disease and memory loss on a personal level at all, because I think a lot of times that just changes people's view, viewpoint a little bit. So, Mary Frances, you wouldn't mind starting and just letting Certainly. us know if you have a connection? Sure. Well, um, my connection to Alzheimer's and related disorders is both professional and personal. Um, professionally, I, I deal with a lot of families and clients that are dealing with memory loss. And personally, um, I've been touched by Alzheimer's um, in a very personal way, I have um, 
family members on both mine and my husband's side where we, we've dealt with Alzheimer's. Just to give you an example, my grandmother was one of 12, and six of the 12 of, that, of those siblings had Alzheimer's. So um, being a close family, we were involved with the caregiving for many elders in my family um, dealing with memory loss. And then also on my husband's side of the family, um, two of his grandparents um, had Alzheimer's and ultimately died um, from complications associated therewith. So both professional and personal connection. Wow, I guess so. I guess so. How about you, Jerry? Have you been touched with it personally at all? Uh, yes, I have, actually. Um, my grandmother, uh, who passed away about uh, 10 or 11 years ago, uh, had uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's for the last several years of her life. And, you know, it was quite a struggle for my dad and, and you know, myself to, to deal with that and the issues that that brought up. So um, at the time, you know, I was handling mostly just basic estate planning as an attorney, and, and that was really one of the catalysts, if you will, that made me want to get more into uh, planning for incapacity and dealing with seniors and their unique health issues was, uh, you know, with what happened to my mother, or grandmother, sorry. Uh, and then pro professionally, yeah, I mean, especially over the last six years, I've dealt with a lot of families that uh, have had a loved one with uh, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia uh, and worked with them, whether it's on just getting an estate plan drafted, doing benefits planning, uh, conservatorships, those types of things. Wonderful. I know, you know, with my folks and going through this this whole transition um, was really an interesting process because my, my folks were blue-collar workers, never felt that they had a lot of money, didn't really feel like they needed to plan. And then all of a sudden my dad got brain cancer, my mom's got Alzheimer's disease, and things changed. And I said, you know, you guys really have to get a will put together. And it was really um, a very difficult time for them because you know, when you approach it at at the time when someone is really ill, it then it all becomes about planning for death. And I really wanted to take that out of the equation because for me, I think it's really just smart business and we should all have things in place like powers of attorney as soon as the kids turn 18, which none of us think about and stuff, which is a whole other show. But um, what I ended up doing with my parents was saying, you know what, Tom and I are going to update our stuff with you um, and to try to take the fear out of it because they were so intimidated. Do you guys find um, that people are intimidated a lot of times with the process? Jerry, I'll let you go first on that one. Uh, yeah, you know, no one likes dealing with death. And, uh, you know, I've found in particular uh, when people come in, it's not something they really want to be doing anyway, setting up wills, powers of attorney, et cetera, even though they know they need to do them. Uh, and they tend to be very nervous. And part of it also, frankly, is that, that you know no one likes dealing with attorneys. And for many of my clients, I'm the first attorney they've ever dealt with. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of makes them nervous as well. But, uh, you know, once they get in, you know, we kind of go over the process and what's involved and, and why it's, uh, very important to do, and, and that seems to uh, allay a lot of their concerns or their nerves, if you will. Sure. The, How about, you know, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the people that, you know, are nervous because they're seeing an attorney, sometimes that never goes away, unfortunately. Yeah. How about you, Mary Frances, anything to add with that? Or? 
I, I agree. I mean, I think um, client. I've, I've been surprised through my practice sometimes where clients are really very nervous um, coming in to see me on the front end. And but but I'll say this: um, the overwhelming majority of people are very um, happy and feel much calmer once once they have the knowledge and they're empowered to to move forward. So. I think that although it can be very intimidating on the front end, it's very satisfying is what I see with most clients. One of the funniest moments for me was when I went with my folks, and um, my folks actually went to Mary Frances's um, practice and met with Chris Major, one of her partners. And my dad was really intimidated with this whole process, and my mom, you know, had early onset, so she was, she wasn't too intimidated. Um, sitting through things, but my dad was was very nervous, which he normally was not. And I'll never ever forget this. Chris came in and she was dressed casual, and that made my dad so comfortable. And then she went and got the coffee herself, and my dad just <laughs> melted. My dad still talks about that because he was like that just disarmed him because he was oh. so. He was so nervous and so afraid that he was going to be talking to someone who was talking over his head and that was going to, I think, belittle him, even though, he, you know, he would never say that. And my dad was a smart, intelligent guy. But I, I think that was a fear inside him. And, and Chris totally disarmed him. Um, and oh, it was just, it was wonderful to watch because he, he trusted her from that moment forward. And it's oh, that's amazing those little things um, that can do. Um, well, yeah, I, I find that that is one concern people often have is that you know they do feel the attorney is going to you know talk over them or talk down to them, and uh, you know I do my best, although I'm sure I, I don't succeed all the time to uh, try to not use legalese and you know, jargon and explain things as simply as, as possible. And there's some concepts, obviously, that are a little bit more complicated and harder to explain. But, um, you know, I have seen attorneys that, uh, you know, do use a lot of legalese, and you can just see the clients kind of glaze over when they're listening to them. And I, I try to avoid that. Again, not always successful, but... Yeah, kind of like when I was in real estate. I mean, you have to talk to the person before you and, you know, really be able to read your clients and, and make them comfortable. Um, Mary Frances, can you tell us, you know, what exactly is an elder law attorney, and what does that what does that mean? That phrase is thrown around, but is there, you know, a certification, or um, is it just focusing on a certain type of law? Can yeah, it's a great on? question. Actually, you know, elder, the elder law practice is relatively young. Um, in, in when you think about it, in the practice of law. I mean, it really started, it was, it was developed after um, the Medicaid program was developed, which was an extension of the Social Security Act of 1965. So if you think about it in terms of the practice, it really started to develop um, in a big way in the mid-80s, the early to mid-80s. Um, and it, elder law attorney um, used to be synonymous with developing a, a plan to qualify people for Medicaid, uh, which is a federal entitlement program that helps people pay for nursing home or 
um, long-term care custodial costs of care. Um, but what, what's happened today is we're finding that the elder law practice has really evolved. And so now elder law attorneys come in different flavors, if you will. And some um, have a practice that's more rooted in the Medicaid-type practice. Um, many elder law attorneys also incorporate veterans' benefit planning into their practice. Um, most are acquainted with um, estate planning, wills, trusts, powers of attorney, advanced directives for health, and also a guardianship conservatorship practice, um, which would be what somebody needs to do if they don't have powers of attorney and healthcare directives. So elder law practices are not all the same, and there are some states, such as Florida, that have state-specific certifications that elder law attorneys can um, obtain in their state bar. But it is very important to sort of understand and know what the character and nature of the elder law practice is um, that, that the client is going to engage with because they are not all the same. And um, different elder law attorneys have different areas of specialty. Okay, wonderful. Now, there was another, um, and I, I totally just forgot the phrase, there, there's another um, group out there we were just talking about before the show started. The Life Care Planning Law Firms Association? Yeah. yeah this is, this is a, a movement that started um, about six years ago, and what happened was the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, which um, is a large affiliation of elder law attorneys across the country with many prominent attorneys affiliated with that organization. Um, some members within the, that movement, NALA, um, decided to, uh, that, that they were interested in developing a group that was really focused on um, holistic elder law practice. And, and some people don't like that word. They think of granola and, you know, <laughs> it's scary. But what, what I mean by holistic practice is really elder-centered, a true elder-centered practice. And so life care planning law firms have either a nurse or social worker in the practice as an employee. And some practices have both, a social worker and a nurse. And the idea is that the intimacy of the planning that we're usually involved with um, on the financial and legal planning is not independent of the family's well-being, health, family support, community support, and so on. So it's, it's a practice that um, brings that into the, the planning in, in a holistic way, meaning that it's looking at the health and wellness um, of the family, the client, um, the community supports, in addition to the legal and financial planning, so or in tandem with. So the Life Care Planning Law Firms Association is a group of attorneys who are committed to this type of law practice where it's very comprehensive and rather than just, oh, come and see me and we'll do some documents and then I'll put you in my database and call me if you need me, it's, it's much more comprehensive and relationship-based. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, I wasn't I wasn't aware of that, and that was a new term that I had not heard before, um, or not heard much of, I should say. So, can you um, can you share with us, Jerry, what made you decide to get into kind of the elder law service angle? Well, yeah, like I said, uh, for the most part, I, I think I was really kind of driven to elder law and dealing with these issues as a result of uh, dealing with. Uh, you know, what happened with my grandmother and some of the issues that uh, my dad faced. Uh, prior to that, you know, I had been doing estate planning 
you know, traditional wills, trusts, powers of attorney for a few years, uh, but not really giving any thought to uh, dealing with uh, elder law or specific issues with regard that uh, that seniors uh, encounter. And after dealing with her, that became a, a something I really wanted to focus on. Uh, and so I did start to expand my practice at that point into doing uh, more conservatorship work. Uh, work. And as, uh, as pointed out, that's for people that don't have uh, wills or trusts or powers of attorney uh, set up, naming people to make decisions for them, uh, and then dealing with the Medicaid planning and uh, benefits planning uh, and those types of issues. Uh, one thing I want to point out, uh, elder law can also... Uh, Encompass, and it's not something I do personally, but also dealing with uh, elder abuse issues, uh, whether it's uh, financial abuse by a family member or something like that, or, or abuse that may happen in a, a care facility. So, I mean, that can also be someone with an elder law practice, uh, but they may be focusing on those specific issues. Okay, great. And and Mary Frances, um, can you tell us, you know, why you chose elder law? Well, for me, um, I I was just wanting to have a law practice that was very connected to um, the client and um, a practice where I felt like I could have an immediate impact on the daily lives of, of my clients and those that I was serving. And so I met um, Chris Mazur, who is the, one of the founding um, members of our law firm and also was a, a lawyer who was instrumental in starting the elder practice in, in the state of Minnesota. I met Chris when I was in law school and um, lear started learning about her practice at that point and um, just felt that it would be a really good way for me to satisfy the desire to help people instead of, um, say, friends of mine that are corporate attorneys working for large businesses. Um, I wanted to be in a practice where I could directly impact the lives of my clients in a meaningful way. And um, the, Chris's practice here that she developed um, had an excellent reputation, and people think very highly of her in the community as, as somebody who really did does touch people's lives. So um, that's what, what drew me to the practice. Okay. Well, I'm thinking, you know, before we get into some um, specifics, is maybe what we should do is really talk about some of the terms um, that that get thrown around. Like, what is a will, and why does somebody need that? Um, and, Jerry, maybe if you want to take that, Mary Frances, you can add into that. And, and there might be some differences, you know, from state-to-state state law in terms of, you know, do they exist or don't they, and in what format. And, again, we just have to be, you know, brief and kind of touch base because, again, no one's really giving legal advice here. Um, because you'd have to meet with the clients in person, I would imagine, um, in order to be able to do that. So, um, Jerry, what is a will? And why okay. Well, a will that? is a document someone uh, creates, and it, it basically does a couple things. It One says that who is going to uh, take over the management of their uh, estate or their finances after death. Uh, that could be referred to as an executor or personal administrator or personal representative. Um, and then it also says who's going to get the person's stuff uh, at death. Um, with a will, in California at least, if what you own is more than uh, worth more than $100,000 at the time that you die, your will is going to go through what's called probate. And uh, probate's just a uh, mechanism where the court supervises the appointment of the executor, 
the payment of your bills, and then the ultimate distribution of the estate. And uh, so, I mean, that that's, you know, basically that's what a will is. Some specific issues in California, uh, a will cannot be notarized. It has to be witnessed by two people. Uh, and a will can actually be fully handwritten um, and not witnessed by anybody as long as all the major terms or material terms is the uh, uh, legal uh, phrase are written in the handwriting of the person signing the will. Okay. Mary Frances, anything you want to add to that? No, just that um, the the limit for um, estates in Minnesota um, would be 50000 instead of 100000 So for decedents, the persons dying with assets in their name alone, um, at or below $50,000, there would not be a need for a probate. And I always tell clients, just because you have a will doesn't mean there wouldn't be a probate. That's a common mistake that a lot of people make, is a will is actually the document that the court uses to uh, govern the probate proceedings. So if there are assets in excess of 50000 in Minnesota, 100000 in California, there will be, um, likely be a probate. So. Okay. And uh, what's a, can you tell us what a trust is, Mary Francis? Sure. Well, a trust a trust is um, also a document um, that is uh, established um, by a, a grantor, that's the per- or a settler, that's the person who's making the document. And um, often they're, they're used in a variety of different ways, but in estate planning, individuals will establish their own trust, and then they will put their property in the trust. And I tell clients to think of it like establishing a separate entity, like a, a, a company, an LLC. It's it's establishing a separate entity that's going to hold on to the property of the settler, the person who established it, often will then move, say, for example, a house or a cabin or a brokerage account um, into the trust. And um, one of the main reasons people do trust is to avoid the probate process because at the death of the trust maker, um, there's no need to go to the probate court because the trust is the owner of the assets as opposed to the individual. So the, the trust can make the distributions on behalf of the decedent um, in accordance with however they set up the terms of distribution during the lifetime. Okay. The other thing that trusts are useful for in the context of incapacity, planning for incapacity, is that trust can provide for management of of somebody's property affairs upon their incapacity. What I mean by that is um, if somebody does a trust and then becomes incapacitated, then um, how their assets will be managed during their incapacity, they can govern that and have control even when they're not able to make their own decisions. Okay, great. And then what about, you know, there's all this pre-planning with powers of attorney. And, um, Jerry, can you explain the difference between a power of attorney and a personal representative? Because I think that gets really confusing for a lot of people out there. Sure. Well, a personal representative or executor, again, is someone that would be named in a will. And they only take uh, power or take control of assets after you're dead. What a power of attorney is for is to name someone that can make financial, if we're talking about a financial power of attorney, to make financial decisions for you while you're alive. And it could be done one of two ways. You can have an immediate power of attorney. So that means when you sign it, the person that you name can step in and make financial decisions right away. 
if, if they chose to do so. Or you can have what's called a springing power, which is simply one that does not take effect until one or more physicians determine in writing that the uh, principal of the power of attorney, the person that has signed it, is declared to be incompetent or unable to manage their financial affairs. And then at that point, it springs forward and it gives the person that you've named uh, in the document the ability to make financial decisions for you while you're alive. I've never heard that term before, springing. Um, Mary Frances, is that something common in Minnesota? It might just be me that hadn't heard that before. It is not common in Minnesota, although allowable. It's just not um, something that's routinely used because um, of the requirement of having to have somebody attest to the capacity. Um, So what you would generally see in Minnesota would be um, clients having an IRS power of attorney, a statutory short form, which is governed by Minnesota law, and then a, a durable common law power of attorney. Okay. And can you explain, you know, I mean, from my real estate background, I mean, we had one for real estate and then it would check off, okay, can they do the finances and the banking? Can they do the real property? I mean, it was very specific in terms of what you were allowing someone to um, have access to or not. And And that. That form that you're talking about is what what I refer to as the Minnesota statutory short form power of attorney, and that's um, if you opened up the Minnesota statutes or if you looked at them online, you'd actually see a picture of that document. So whether you have it done at Major Amundsen Price or another law office or you get it from you know the internet, it should look the same um, in terms of the format. And that's it was designed by the legislature to be. Um, easy to recognize by, um, you know, banks and lending institutions and also if you're purchasing and recording real estate. Until it comes to, like, VA or Social Security where they want to use their own form. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's right. Problem with my phone. I'm like, well, what do you mean we have this done? And they're like, well, no, we have our own. And so it's, I mean, it's so complicated out there. And I would imagine do all states have different, um, I suppose, rules and regulations regarding, you know, power of attorney and um, what I suppose wills and the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, and so yeah, all of those issues are, are dealt with at a state level. Um, you know, California has its own uh, short form statutory power of attorney that has some check boxes and what have you, uh, but it's going to be in a different format than the one in Minnesota. Uh, And, again, another difference in California is, again, wills cannot be notarized in California. They have to be witnessed. Uh, And I've seen wills from other states that were notarized, and that's acceptable. So every state's a little bit different how they deal with things. Well, and then when it comes to a lot of people have different properties or assets in different states, I would imagine that would complicate things a little bit there, too, in terms of how that needs – if it's a – the law in which you live in, does that override where you have assets in then, or does that vary as well, too? Either of Well, them? I mean, I, I think you, you first look at where the person was, was domiciled and did they have a will from that state or did they have a will that can be probated in that state using the state of another law of another state. But um, to answer your question about the multiple property interests and differing states. I mean, in Minnesota, of course, we have a lot of people who have land in the upper Midwest and other states 
that's one of the circumstances we'd be looking for to make sure we have a good estate plan in place to address the potential that there'd have to be probates in multiple states to handle um, passing title of the, of the real property interest. So, okay. so yeah, it you know it is governed a little bit by where the person lives and also by what their prop property interests are and where those property interests are held if they're in the state they died in or if they're in another state. Okay. You know, and having property in other states is one reason why someone would want to probably do a living trust as opposed to just having a will. Uh, because the trust avoids probate, uh, there's no need to have to bring probate proceedings in each state where there may be real property, whereas if someone has a will um, and that's it and they have real property, let's say in California uh, and Arizona or something like that, um, you would have to not only open up a probate in California, you'd have to open up what's called an ancillary probate in the state of Arizona as well. So with a trust, you can avoid doing that. Okay. Now, let's touch on life estates. Um, and I, I've heard that they're kind of going away, and I don't know if that's true. Um, but, Mary Frances, would you mind explaining what a life estate is uh, or was sure. or whatever oh. the status is there? I, I'll take a stab at it, but um, Jerry, please jump in if you have uh, ideas. Basically, life estate is um, it's an abstract legal concept. It's a way to own um, an interest in property. So let's use an example. If we have um, you know, grandma and grandpa that own a house and they have uh, two children and they're aging and getting concerned about uh, probate and or um, protecting their assets in the case of long-term health problems, they might consider putting their home in what's called a life estate. And when what it is is it's actually a deed, so it's a piece of paper that usually a lawyer draws up, and it's signed by the property owners. And in my example, Grandma and Grandpa would sign the deed saying, um, we are gifting this property to our children in equal shares, except we're going to reserve a life interest. And what that means simply is during their lifetime, as long as they're alive, they get to use the property. They can paint it purple. They have to pay the taxes. They are responsible for maintaining it. But at death, the interest would go to the remainder persons, in this case their children. And um, what's a little different about that, instead of just quit claiming or just giving the property over, is that it's a, it's a partial gift. When the, when the actual uh, gift is made, um, to the remainder persons, the children in my example, that's considered, They then at that moment, they have an interest in the property. So if grandma and grandpa decide to sell the property in two years, the children are going to get a check at the closing. And the value of what their life interest is measured by is um, their age. It's their statistic, there's a, there's a, um, chart that we use based on statistical life expectancy, which um, as somebody ages, they're, they're not going to live as long, so their interest in the house is lower and lower with each passing year. So this used to be in Minnesota um, an effective way to protect the homestead against estate recovery and Medicaid planning, which we'll talk about a little later. But I think what you're referring to, Lori, is now that because of changes in Minnesota law, we've had to reconsider how we're using life estates and planning. Yeah, exactly. Um, wonderful. Thank you. Anything you wanted to add there, Jerry? 
Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, I typically don't uh, do uh, life estates. Um, uh, you know, if I'm doing uh, planning where people want to retain an interest in property, we typically do it through the a mechanism of a trust or a retained right of occupancy as opposed to a life estate that would be recorded as, as, as part of a deed. Uh, but, yeah, they're not as very common in California anymore either. Okay, great. Well, let's get into, um, you know, the health care directives and, and all of those. I mean, there's kind of a batch of things that, that do not resuscitate the health care power of attorneys. Um, one of you like to kind of explain kind of that batch of documents and why they're important, what they're about? I'll go, I guess. Okay, okay great. Thanks, Jerry. Um, so in California, we have uh, what's called an advanced health care directive, uh, and that is, uh, and just like in most states, that's a, a creation basically of the state legislature as far as what's required, what the document looks like, etc. cetera. Uh, in California, the advanced health care directive does a couple different things. Uh, first, you know, it does indicate who you want to make health care decisions for you, if you're unable to make those decisions yourself, uh, that's considered the power of attorney portion of it, if you will. And then the next portion or part of it uh, deals with what are your wishes. Uh, and that includes uh, what are your wishes regarding uh, end-of-life decisions. You know, do you want to be kept alive as long as possible? Do you not want to be kept alive as long as possible if uh, you have an incurable condition? Uh, or the burdens outweigh the benefits of treatment, etc. But it's also where you can put in whatever other uh, requirements or restrictions that you have with regard to the type of health care that you want. Uh, for example, uh, certain uh, religious groups may have uh, prohibitions against certain types of treatments. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, cannot have any blood products. So if, that, if you were a Jehovah's Witness, You'd want to list in your advanced health care directive that you do not want blood products used uh, because this is not just instructions to the person you've named to make decisions for you. These are instructions to anybody that's actually treating you as well. Uh, you can put in what are your wishes with regard to organ donation, uh, burial instructions, those types of things. Uh, the advanced directive also has a place where you can list out who your primary physician is uh, although I personally don't have people fill that in since uh, doctors do change fairly regularly, um, I tell people instead to just maintain a list of all the doctors that they're seeing and update that as necessary and appropriate. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, what an advanced health care directive in California does. It, again, states who's going to make decisions for you and the what decisions that you want made with regard to your health care. Okay. Mary Francis, do you want to add anything in on that? Or? Yeah, very similar with regard to Minnesota. The document is the health care directive. Um, I'll just add that for those of us who are in states where many, many of our elder clients go south for the winter, um, I encourage them to check the state law in the state where they winter to make sure that the Minnesota health care directive would be recognized because this is an intensely state-specific um, planning Document. So for people who live in multiple states, you, it, it's wise to just check in the locale where you're residing to make sure you have an effective directive in each uh, jurisdiction. 
Interesting. I was, I was talking with somebody the other day um, in a chat room, and they were talking about power of attorney, and I can't remember what, they're not power of attorney, but um, do not resuscitate um, documents. And they said in their state, and I, I want to say it was Texas, but I, I could be mistaken, that if you called an ambulance and you gave them the do not resuscitate, um, they would still have to resuscitate. Um, unless it was in the file in the hospital or something. And I thought, well, wow, that was interesting. It's kind of like, what's the point? But you just never know what the state laws are. And I think that's why it's so important to go to a professional that knows, you know, what will protect you and, and be able to guide you in different situations. So one of the things that's really important for people is, you know, what's the difference between medical assistance and Medicare and veterans' benefits? And I know, Jerry, you, it sounds like California is set up a little bit different. They have a, a Medi-Cal. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. That's the name that we give the Medicaid program. Okay. And can you, can you explain to people what Medicaid is all about? Well, I mean, I could explain uh, Medi-Cal and... Mm-hmm. You know, Mary Francis can fill in how the program in uh, in Minnesota is different. Uh, Medi-Cal is, is basically, um, you know, there's actually a couple components to it, uh, but it's, it is the Medicaid program in uh, California. And, you know, there's a number of different benefits that, you know, are, people are entitled to. For the clients that I deal with, we're either looking at what, you know, we kind of call community-based Medi-Cal, and that's what, people traditionally think of as Medi-Cal or Medicaid, which is, in essence, kind of uh, like health insurance that you have to be financially eligible uh, for. Um, but more commonly, I'm dealing with people that are looking at having Medi-Cal uh, pay for skilled nursing care. And uh, this is where California is significantly different uh, than any place uh, else in the country. Uh, and the, the reasons for the differences are fairly technical and complicated, but I'll, I'll try to uh, explain it as, as succinctly as, as possible. Uh, the Medicaid program uh, is set up, you know, in by the federal government, and each state is in their own state operates their Medicaid program, uh, supposedly following what the federal rules and regulations are. Uh, in California, however. We're still currently operating, for the most part, under rules that were established back in 1989, uh, whereas the rest of the country is uh, dealing with rules that were established in 2005. Uh, so for people that live in California, that is actually very beneficial and advantageous, and, and we can get into more details about that later. Um, but basically, Medi-Cal works for skilled nursing care by looking at the assets that a person has or a married couple and dividing them into two categories, uh, exempt assets or those things that don't count in determining if they can receive Medi-Cal benefits, uh, and then non-exempt assets or those things that uh, are countable in determining if you're financially eligible. Um, Typical exempt assets in California are your house, your IRA, if you're the Medi-Cal recipient, as long as you're receiving distributions, uh, and then your spouse's IRA. Uh, there's other ones such as personal effects, one automobile, um, but those are the big categories of, of exempt assets. 
the non-exempt assets would be you know, bank accounts, other real property, other vehicles, those types of things. And is there yeah. a spend-down limit? I know in Minnesota we have a, you know, you have to spend down to a certain amount. Uh, yeah, in California for a uh, uh, single person or even a married person that they can have up to $2,000 in non-exempt assets. Uh, if you're married, however, your spouse in California can have $110,560 of non-exempt assets. Okay. So between the two, it's uh, you know a little over 112000 of non-exempt assets for a married couple. Okay. Mary Frances, can you, is there any differences in Minnesota? Um, one notable difference would be that the IRAs are not an exempt asset in Minnesota, um, so those would be considered available and um, you know must be included as part of a community spouse asset allowance, or um, ha they would have to be spent down. Um, so if you have somebody who needs to apply for medical assistance, is, is our term for the Medicaid program in Minnesota, um, an applicant that has an IRA would, it, well, an applicant is not allowed to have more than $3,000 in assets um, to be eligible for the program. So to the extent that we have a retirement fund, an individual retirement fund, that would be considered an available asset and would need to be spent down on care um, before qualifying. Okay. And then, um, you know, talking about this spend down and stuff, what's the look back period in both states? For you know, because a lot of times I know people want to gift things away, but you have to—that has to be extremely planned and orchestrated, and things can change even if you follow the rules. It sounds like so. Um, That's true. Uh, so, I'll let um, Mary Francis go first. <laughs> okay. Well, in in Minnesota, um, we. Uh, following the Deficit Reduction Act of 2005, um, implemented a 60-month or five-year look-back period, which was just fully implemented uh, February of 2011. So today in Minnesota, there's a five-year look-back period, which means somebody who's applying for medical assistance needs to be prepared to account for what they've done with the assets in the preceding five years leading up to the application. And um, so that surprises a lot of people but um, no transfers are disregarded. So um, even charitable transfers or transfers for, you know, gifting of any kind would be considered um, an improper transfer. Okay. And they were looking at that maybe even being a longer period um, is what I had heard. So five years is nice, actually. <laughs> um, and how, how about in California, Jerry? Well, California has not implemented the Deficit Reduction Act as of yet. Um, that should happen probably by the end of this year. So in California, the look-back period is 30 months. Okay. Um, you know, so that's a big significant difference. Um, and then one other uh, big difference is in California, if someone was, was to give money away, uh, in other states, you know, if someone gave away let's say $30,000 over the course of a two- or three-month period, uh, and then maybe they gave it to several different people, those states are going to just add that amount together and determine how much of what's called a penalty period or amount of time you need to wait before you're eligible to apply for benefits. Um, in California, we treat each gift that is made separately. So if, for example, I gave away $30,000, but I did it over 
a six-day period giving away $5,000 a day, California is going to treat each of those as a $5,000 gift, which would only run in a period of or penalty period of one month, and they would all run at the same time. So if I started today giving away 5000 and I was done next week, I would be eligible for Medicaid or Medi-Cal benefits next month. Wow. Okay. You can't do that anywhere else. <laughs> now, whether you should be able to do it or not is a different issue, but that is the current rule in California. Mary Francis, did you have something to add? I was just I, I was just thinking to myself, it's significantly different in Minnesota. Um much um, much more stringent application of the look back. Um, we are one of the states that has one of the most restrictive um, programs in terms of qualification and in terms of a state recovery, which is what the state can do to try and recover assets from the estate of the surviving spouse. So um, I don't know what the takeaway is. Maybe Minnesotans are going to be moving to California. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's scary all over. It's, it, you know, it, you don't know what to do. I, I went through it with my mom, and I remember, and, and my parents going through this whole thing, and then, you know, getting a form saying, you know what, this is what the law is today, but it doesn't mean it can't change tomorrow. And, and you know, there was talk about not grandfathering people in, and I mean, it's it's spooky stuff. And so you can just make the best decision you can make. Um, you know, with an expert in the area, and then I think you have to kind of let it go and say whatever's going to be is going to be. Um, that's the attitude I took with it anyways, because it was, you could drive yourself crazy, you know, and then not do anything at all. And, and I knew that that wasn't going to be good for my folks either. But it's a it's an intimidating um, process. Mom, you know, has been in the nursing home quite a while, and so it, <clears throat> she ended up going on medical assistance and I was, I mean, I was a nervous wreck when I went to meet with them, you know, and I had everything in these three-ring binders. I think I had probably five, four or five, you know, three to four-inch three-ring binders with everything, <laughs> every deposit, every withdrawal, every everything. And um, I, I rolled in there with, like, two briefcases filled with these things, and this woman looked at me, and she just chuckled. And she said, my God, I've never had anybody so organized in my entire career. She's like, you're missing one piece of paper. <laughs> That's it. But it took me like two weeks to, you know, really pull everything together because I just didn't want to have to deal with it. I wanted to have everything charted and, and easy to follow so that I could answer the questions or I would be able to know if I had to go back later on what was going on. Um, but, again, the, the process can be very intimidating um, to people and I, I just highly encourage people to you know hire an, an elder law attorney that that understands your particular situation because you can't get um, I mean you can get free advice on this stuff but it just isn't going to do you justice because everybody's situations are so different and um, I don't know that's that's my read on it anyway um, now what about like um, Veterans benefits. You know, you're hearing more and more talk about veterans um, benefits. Mary Frances, I know that's kind of a specialty of yours. Can you tell us a, a little bit about what is available or how that works? And Sure. Well, 
Um, first of all, as I mentioned before, some elder law attorneys go through the process of becoming accredited to practice before the um, Department of Veterans Affairs. And um, so that's a, a, an extra certification that some attorneys can get so that they can advise clients. Or attorneys that go through and become accredited are um, able then to advise clients on federal benefits which may be available to veterans and their families. Um, so there are federal benefits available which would apply, the same rules would apply um, in any state. So there's a, a group, there are a group of attorneys that collaborate on a national level talking about issues um, facing veterans that are making claim, benefit claims um, for, through the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Then in the state of Minnesota and in, in other states, they have state-level veterans benefits, um, which VA accredited attorneys also help um, clients access and figure out how to qualify for. So just an example, one of the major benefits in our state would be um, veterans who served more than six months that had an honorable discharge or their spouses um, would be eligible to reside in one of the state-run nursing homes um, there are four in the state of Minnesota, and there are some significant uh, financial benefits when you compare um, private nursing home with a Medicaid plan to going to a, a state veteran's home. And then on the federal level, there are benefits available for wartime veterans that can help um, defray the expense of home and community-based services, memory care, um, or assisted living. And so a lot of elder law attorneys are getting actively involved with advising clients on how that fits into the planning um, for long-term health-related expenses. Oh, interesting. And I know that you, I believe you're accredited. Um, you've gone through that program for, for the vet. Right. Yep. I became an accredited attorney in 2008. And then in our practice, out of seven attorneys, we have um, five that are accredited. Okay. Well, I know your firm really saved a friend of a friend of mine who was having a really difficult time um, and an end-of-life issue, and you guys just plowed through um, things. She had been talking to several um, other attorneys and trying to find resources and just couldn't get to the right people and ask the right questions, and you guys just got to the bottom of it literally within like three days and her husband was on hospice and it was critical that it got done. So I have to personally thank you for, for the work you did there. That was wonderful. Um, oh, that's, thank you for the feedback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were just amazed. She was so exhausted and, you know, it, it had been a really long, long journey um, of hospitalization of over a year. And so, you know, he was, he was wearing through, you know, financially and stuff, and, and so that worked out just beautifully for them as a family. Um, Jerry, is that something that you do? I know not all attorneys, you know, get involved in that. It sounded like your specialty was really kind of the, the medical. Uh, you know, I do do uh, some work as far as uh, VA benefits are concerned, not really the analysis or the application uh, for the benefits. Um, but doing whatever estate planning vehicles may be necessary in, in order to, um, uh, you know, help obtain those benefits. Uh, and by that I mean doing certain types of irrevocable trusts and that type of thing. Um, but, no, as far as uh, applying for the benefits, uh, I don't really do that. Um, I do help identify what benefits may be available. 
and then there are nonprofit entities out here that would help with the application process itself. Okay. Now that's a term we need to touch on, the difference between revocable and irrevocable and what that means for people. Um, Jerry, would you, since you brought that up, would you mind just um, defining those two terms for people? I'm sorry, were you asking me or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, a revocable document, and it's usually in reference to a, what we call a living trust, is simply one that you can make changes to uh, up until you know the time that you die, uh, you know, or become incapacitated and can't make decisions anymore. Uh, an irrevocable trust is one that, when it is set up, it cannot be revoked or have uh, the majority of its provisions changed, uh, in, at least in California, absent a court order. Um, so basically, once it's set up, it's set up, and it's you know set in stone. Uh, for purposes of government benefits planning in California, we often will use irrevocable trusts to have the uh, personal residence of a Medi-Cal recipient uh, uh, transferred into, and if it's set up properly, it would not be a disqualifying transfer as far as Medi-Cal is concerned, uh, and. Uh, they would get tax benefits upon death as far as getting a new tax basis, and we are able to avoid a state recovery uh, or the ability of the state to come back and be reimbursed for payment of any Medi-Cal expenses by having it transferred into an irrevocable trust. Uh, again, this is one area where I know California is significantly different than most other states. Mary Francis, anything you want to add to that? Just the compare and compare with Minnesota, um, as Jerry pointed out, it, it, California is very different. Minnesota irrevocable trusts are not an effective tool um, for Medicaid planning. They provide no protection um, for, for assets. So if anybody listening has that type of trust, it is very state-specific. Um, there are many states that have different types of trusts that can help um, protect assets and qualify for Medicaid. Um, but in Minnesota, you'd have to use extreme caution if somebody's telling you that's possible. Okay. Well, great. I think we've gone over the majority of the of terms and stuff. Is there anything out there that, that we've missed that we should kind of define for people? I think maybe just guardianship conservatorship. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, because that's something that comes up frequently. Um, I'll just touch base on, on that from the Minnesota perspective, and then maybe Jerry can fill in the blanks. But in, in sure. Minnesota, we have two proceedings um, before the court, uh, guardianship and conservatorship. Often they are in tandem or done at the same time, but not always. A guardianship is when somebody does not have a health care directive, for example, and uh, if somebody becomes incapacitated and medical decision-making is necessary and the patient is really not able to do that, um, or if there's a conflict in the family about the, the, um, the care plan, then sometimes there's a need to petition the court to appoint a guardian over the person. In Minnesota, the guardianship refers to the medical decision-making and well-being of a person. And the flip side of that would be the conservatorship deals with their financial decision-making, their property interests, their money, um, and who handles that. Often it can be the same person, but sometimes there's a need to only do a guardianship, but there might be a trust set up, so the financial decision-making's in order. But when there's no power of attorney in place um, and, and you need to get access to the assets of somebody who's incapacitated, 
sometimes that um, results in having to petition the court for a conservatorship, and that would um, establish um, a conservatorship and appoint a conservator, which is a person who has the authority to manage the financial um, interests and property interests of um, the ward or the incapacitated person. So those proceedings um, are often in the thousands of dollars versus doing the health care directives and powers of attorney, which are in the hundreds, if that. Okay. Jerry, anything you wanted to add? Uh, yeah. So in California, a guardianship actually refers to the procedure which someone could be appointed that would either make personal or financial decisions for a minor, someone under the age of 18. Um, a conservatorship is what we have for adults that are unable to either make financial or personal decisions or both. And you can have a conservator of the person uh, and of the estate, or again, it can be of the person and estate. And conservatorships are typically appropriate uh, for people, again, that don't have powers of attorney, advanced health care directives in place and something happens to them, they've had a stroke, they're in a significant or serious car accident, something like that, uh, where it also is appropriate in California is if uh, someone is maybe not incapacitated and so they can't make decisions, they just are very easily influenced into making wrong decisions. And in those cases, a court can appoint a conservator of the estate, even though, again, from a medical uh, point of view, that they're still capable of making decisions. Again, they just really can't fight off fraud or undue influence. Uh, another time that a conservatorship would be necessary, even if someone had powers of attorney and these other documents, is if they have dementia and they're a wanderer, and they need to be placed into a secured facility, someplace where, you know, they're in behind either a, uh, you know, in a locked unit or they're given like an ankle bracelet that goes off if you go beyond a certain point. Uh, often a conservatorship of the person would be necessary in those situations as well because the facility is going to require it. Okay. And that's a, uh, another reason that people would do a conservatorship is, let's say, um, you have someone who has a child that uh, was in a serious car accident and is now disabled, um, and so that the parent would have wanted to set up a special needs trust for that child to protect the government benefits they may get. Well, let's say the parent now has a stroke, and so they're incapable of making any changes to their own trust to protect their kid. You can do a conservatorship and ask for, in California, what's called substituted judgment, where you ask the court for permission to change the person who has conserved estate plan for whatever reason, again, to provide for a disabled child or, or whatever. And so it's possible through a, a conservatorship to actually change someone's existing estate plan, uh, as, again, as long as the court signs off on it. And so that would be another circumstance where it's, uh, you know, a conservatorship would be appropriate, even though you may have these other documents in place. Interesting. Um, let's go into, if if you, let's say you hypothetically are meeting with a family and someone has just gotten diagnosed with, let's say, early onset What what would you recommend their first steps be in terms of, of legalities to protect their assets. 
Um, Mary Frances, do you want to go first on this, and then we'll bounce it back to Jerry again? Sure. So, so the question was, what would I recommend if somebody just got an early onset diagnosis? Yeah. Well, from a from a planning perspective, clearly, um, early early onset does or you know, a diagnosis of early onset does not um, automatically mean that somebody's not able to do documents. So, um, that would be an ideal time to start some planning. The, the assessment of capacity would have to be done on a very individual level, but many, many people dealing with early onset are, are capable of understanding and knowing and being able to participate in a meaningful way in their planning. And that's why, um, that's when uh, the planning becomes so important, I think, because um, earlier on in a diagnosis, you have a lot more planning options than if you're in a crisis mode. And crisis mode, I mean, uh, we, we have to place this person. We don't have a choice because there's been a wandering incident or a fall, and the doctor is requiring 24/7 care. Um, so I think, er, part from a legal and financial planning perspective, um, shortly after a diagnosis, uh, th that family should be thinking about getting in and doing some planning because that's when the family will have the most options in terms of choosing the right path or plan for for the family. Great. Jerry, do you want to add anything there? Um, you know, there's not a lot to add to that. I mean, it, it definitely is the best time if you do get an early onset diagnosis to start doing uh, planning because, again, the person still has the capacity to, uh, you know, agree to the planning and, and, and sign documents and what have you. And that planning can really be just making sure that there's wills, trusts, powers of attorney, advanced directives in place to, you know, potentially looking at, okay, well, in five or six years, are we going to need to place this person? Do we want to start doing some type of Medicaid plan now? Um, you know, if there's going to be a spend down or gifting so that uh, by the time they may need these benefits, they would be eligible for them. So, you know, the the scope of the plan really is going to depend on, you know, the the client, their family circumstances, their uh, what kind of assets they have, et cetera. But it's definitely important to look at getting and making sure that powers of attorney are in place, that advanced directives are in place, and then a trust or a will is in place as well. Great. Yeah, I, I would see that vitally important, especially with someone with early onset, because they still can um, make a lot of determinations of how they want things to be um, in the future and still still have a voice there. Well, I, I can't thank you guys enough for, you know, all the information that you've shared with us. Um, Jerry, is there is there anything specifically that we've missed that you would like um, people to know about you? Um, you know, I mean, I think we've pretty much covered it. Um, you know, my uh, I, I do offer a lot of uh, free information on my website, www.cummingslegal.com. Uh, from there, they're able to sign up for various uh, um, newsletters and other things that uh, you know I provide free of charge to you know more educate them about various areas such as dealing with Alzheimer's, uh, uh, medical planning issues, estate planning issues, uh, and I do offer free consultations. So uh, you know I urge people to take advantage of that. I have to say I get your newsletter, Jerry, and I'm really impressed with it because it's. 
I love how it's always in story format. So it's a real example of, of somebody else going through the same thing, um, spoken in very easy language to understand. And I think that's really needed out there. So I want to thank you for that that information. Oh, and Mary, Mary Frances, how about you? Any anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to cover? No, I don't think so. I mean, if if anybody um, has, I'm a frequent lecturer in the Minnesota area, so in the state of Minnesota. So if anybody has an interest in um, hearing about estate planning, uh, planning for long-term care. Um, they can check out our website or contact my office um, to find out where I'll be in the community and what topics I'll be talking about. And you are a fabulous, high, high-demand speaker because she, um, I've, I've seen Mary Frances in action a few times and people just can't literally get enough of her. And I, I think it's because, you know, your field is so complicated to us lay people. We don't have a clue. I mean, we can we can read and we can digest a lot of different things, but the twists and the turns from state to state um, and then from family to family to individual to individual gets so complicated, and it's um, it's highly needed out there. So I, I thank you for the work you're doing. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about was, um, and I don't know if you guys have any beliefs one way or the other in terms of long term. Um, insurance for people for you know health care do either of you have any thoughts on that when it comes specifically to memory loss well you know the one issue about long-term care insurance obviously is that if someone gets a diagnosis of early onset uh, dementia you know by then it's going to be too late to you know get insurance but as a general rule you know I do advise any of my clients over the age of 50 to at least look into how much it would cost them because I explain, as I explained to them, uh, and I, not every client, I mean, if I had a client with $3 million sitting in the bank, I would not you know, recommend they look at long-term care insurance. They could afford to self-insure. But, you know, what I tell them is, you know, we can do Medicaid planning, but it's only going to pay, at least in California, for you to go to a skilled nursing home. And you don't want to do have to do that. You know, you'd rather... I'm assuming want to stay at home or at the very least go to some lesser level of care before you had to go to a nursing facility and you know let's look into how much this is going to cost you and if it's feasible based on your circumstances and income and finances you know to you know get this type of insurance and so you know I definitely recommend that people look into it and you know then they need to make a decision based on cost if it's if it's worthwhile or not but it will pay for far more than any government program would ever be able to pay for. Okay, great. Mary Frances, any thoughts from you? I, I generally agree. I just I tell clients that um, you know it's we're in an attitude of or, uh, we're in an era of personal responsibility, and what I mean by that is um, all of us are going to be confronted with how do we pay for the long-term care expenses of ourselves, perhaps our parents. So for those of us who um, can qualify for the product when when our financial advisors and legal advisors suggest, hey, take a look at this, it's usually because um, we're in the target market of, of people who may benefit from having the product. And I'll add this, as an attorney working with clients that have the product and don't, clearly the client, my clients that have it um, have a lot more options than those who don't. So, um, so on the planning side, I do see some benefits. 
but it's not appropriate for everybody, and that's a decision that has to be individually made with trusted advisors. Okay, great, wonderful. Um, before we get into the final wrap-up here, I wanted to ask each of you, what was the biggest, you know, have you had a big surprise in terms of dealing with your clients or heard something that was a compliment um, that just kind of really surprised you and softened your heart and said, you know what, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And Jerry, if you want to go first on that. Okay, can you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. Is You know, have you gotten a comment or a letter from a client um, that's just really reinforced why you do what you do, something that really surprised you that you didn't really see coming, that they found valuable in your service? Um, not anything maybe that's surprised me per se, but, you know, I have had clients send me thank you letters and, you know, for, for the work that I've done and, you know, sending uh, Christmas presents and those kind of things. Um, you know, a lot of clients that I've worked for have referred several other people over to me. So I think to me that's the the greatest compliment because, you know, not only are they saying thank you, but they're willing to put their own reputation on the line by sending someone over uh, for the services that I could provide. Sure. How about you, Mary Frances? You know, recently I was, I'm working with a husband and wife that are in their late 60s, and um, the wife of this couple has early onset Alzheimer's, and I've been working with them through a number of months on some planning, and at our last meeting, um, the husband of the couple said, you know, I we've, they were working with a therapist dealing with the changes um, in his wife's memory and how that impacts their lives, and he said, you know, my therapist asked me if I, if I could um, pass on your contact information, she's so impressed with how um, you have handled our planning that she wants to contact you and be able to refer you to other patients. And I, I again, think the highest compliment is a referral. Um, and so that was very touching that, that he would have been to know that the family had expressed their gratitude to another professional advisor. Well, that's, that's very neat. Well, with that, I guess I want to, again, thank you both so much for taking time, you know, for being with us today. And you know, for people listening, you can look on the website there and get the information um, in terms of how to contact both Mary Frances and Jerry. But why don't we go ahead, for those who might just be listening by phone, um, if each of you wouldn't mind just um, stating your website and a phone number they could contact you with. And, um, Jerry, I'll let you go ahead and start. Okay. Well, my phone number for anybody that is interested in calling is 408-286-2122. Okay. Mary Francis? Um, for Mazer Amundsen Price, the phone number is 952 925 4147. Okay, wonderful. Um, well, again, thank you both for doing what you're doing. It's so needed and um, much appreciated by all of us. And I hope our listeners understand how complicated that this can be, but how relaxed it can also be and comforting to know that you've got a professional on your side um, helping you walk through all this terminology and helping you plan for the future. Our next show is going to be tomorrow, actually, August 4th at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's noon Eastern. 
and 9 o'clock Pacific Time with Joel Skillian, who is the author of Confessions of a Caregiver, When Alzheimer's Comes to Your Home. I really hope you'll be able to make this show because his book is fabulous. It is um, a short, sweet book that really talks about the emotions, both the negative and the positive, and he has um, several tools that will help people maneuver through caregiving. Um, he went through this journey with his mother-in-law um, living in their house, and um, again, it's a really, I think it'll be a really, really great discussion. For those of you that are memory impaired and possibly interested in sharing your story with the world, please shoot me an email. I'd love to talk with you, and maybe you can be the guest of our next show. We purposely designed the show to be laid back and comfortable because it's just like talking with good friends on the phone from the comfort of your own home. I hope you decide all to join Alzheimer's Speaks and become advocates on steroids for the disease by speaking out and giving voice so others can learn what this journey is really about. And again, I remind you to please share our sites by linking to us, um, liking us, or forwarding our links um, onto your family, friends, and coworkers. And don't forget to, to focus on the three simple things your memory chip teaches you when you're dealing with someone who's memory impaired. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? You can get your free memory chip and lots of other good information resources by clicking on um, com. And thank you again for listening. And please think ahead to go ahead and plan for your future with a with a professional of your choice. And have a blessed day. Bye now. Well, hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.